Think about the disciples. If education was going to make somebody like Jesus, shouldn't the 12 have been exactly like him after three and a half years of walking around with a rabbi? With, I mean, we're saying, well, that, that just wasn't that good of a discipleship program. Welcome, everyone, to the we're Faith not. Recovery Podcast. We are live. <laughs> no, we're not. We're pre-recorded. Okay. I'll start over. We're hot. He threw me off. <laughs> Welcome, everyone, to the Faith Recovery Podcast, where three failed pastors, Alex, Kent, and Nathan, are seeking to recover from bad ideas about God and recover uh, what's wonderful and good about the gospel. We're in a series called Recovering Faith. Last week, we asked the question, what is the proper use of Scripture once we have come to see that the church and the Christian life is governed by the gospel, not by the Bible. Once we see that the, we're really under the gospel, not the Bible, right. what then is the proper use of the Bible? And we explored that some last week uh, about how the gospel is the word of God. The gospel is the word of God. Yes. And the Bible is commentary on the word of God. So if you're interested in uh, exploring more Go back and listen to episode 13 for more on that. Today, in episode 14, we're beginning to draw our series to a close with some applications of this idea that the gospel is our only authority. So Nathan, you write, you write this. What innovations over the past 2,000 years have improved on the gospel Paul preached? I believe that number to be precisely zero. I'm calling the church to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of her own, but that which is through the faith of Christ. What might that look like? And you give us four exhortations to any who would like to find out. And here's the four. One, evangelize, don't proselytize. Two, retool discipleship. Three, adore Christ as one flesh. Four, let God rule his kingdom. So that's our outline moving forward. I don't know how many of those we'll get through today. We're going to go back to number one, evangelize, don't proselytize. Now let's just begin with some definitions. What does it mean to, to proselytize versus evangelize? Yeah, I just think naturally when people hear evangelize and proselytize, sometimes depending on the background, they might think, well, what's the difference? I thought that was the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Certain countries have rules against proselytizing. They don't want their citizenry. I'm thinking about Modi's regime in, in uh, India. He doesn't like proselytizing. And, and that word, at least for me, it conjures up the notion of uh, indoctrination and training somebody in your belief system, um, perhaps programming them as uh, maybe a, a cult might do. It, it, that would be a, a negative connotation. Uh, proselytization is maybe a more general term that we use in, in terms of just converting somebody from one religion to another. Um, it, it kind of has predatory, uh, self-serving connotations in that you're trying to amass followers mm -hmm. um, and gain them as a resource, perhaps to your movement. Mm -hmm. So those are all negative things. When, when I say that, what I what I mean is that uh, we shouldn't indoctrinate people into our group. So proselytization, I think, happens when 
the group becomes the draw and the belief system becomes the requirement to be a part of the group. So let's say you invite somebody to your church and um, you're having a, a potluck or a fish fry or something, right? And, and this person is, uh, maybe they've struggled. They, they're just struggled in life. They can't find their place. And what they find is a, is a group of just very friendly people who are delighted to have them there. And they have some really great conversations. They see people who are perhaps somewhat morally exemplary. And they think, man, I, I don't think I've met a group of people like this. And, and that's a wonderful thing. Uh, but then they say, well, man, how can I be a part of this group? And we say, well, you just have to believe this set of things. And man, I don't know if I believe that, right? Can I keep coming? Sure. You know, after a while, though, the person starts to say, well, I don't know that I disbelieve it. And, you know, a little bit longer than they say, I think I could buy this. And then a little bit longer than they say, yeah, this is definitely the truth. Um, and that's fine. And I, I think that we as the church are supposed to be that city on a hill. But it's when we intentionally use that those conforming pressures, that those tendencies to gain followers that uh, I think we've crossed the line. And it, it's when we begin to use our collective resources and our relationships and stuff to bring people in, we are denying a faith in the power of the gospel. Paul seemed to think that the gospel was powerful enough on its own to convert somebody. Um, we, I wonder, uh, oftentimes, if we use all of this kind of contrived mechanisms to bring people in, if we aren't somehow just passively saying, this probably isn't all that compelling to you, and it may even not even be all that convincing to us, but it's good, you know, uh, that we're saying whether it's true or not is not as important as whether it's good um, or whether it's positive. And that becomes, I think, dangerous to us. Yeah, so this gets back to something that we talked about early on in this series about um, just the danger of human authority and the power of conformity within a, a group of people. That, that um, That's not enough to achieve the purposes of God. <laughs> right. And in fact, that, that often becomes counter to that. And so we see that dynamic play out in a lot of horrible things that uh, groups of people have done throughout history. So obviously, if we're, if we're bringing people in and having them join the community of Christ primarily through this maybe good desire to conform to something that seems welcoming and uh, positive, that's not enough for someone to... Uh, really have their the foundation of faith in, in the way that they should, like Paul is talking about with the gospel itself. Yeah. And Paul had a luxury, you know, he didn't have this established group. He would come in and he had his little missionary troop, I guess, that he would come into town with, but he, he couldn't absorb an individual into an, a standing society of faith. He had just a message. If people didn't believe it, then he didn't have anything. He had to go on. Um, and we we happen to be able to resort to 
we have the resources. We have the we have the, we have an, uh, an institution in society, and we can build up that inst that that meeting that that institution, its programs, its buildings, its offerings, and try to get people to participate in the organization. Right. And someone here's the thing: is is oftentimes people I, I'll make a critique like this, and then someone will say, "Man, you need a hobby." You need you need something else to think about because they you know they see all the good being done and they're saying why are you why are you being a wrench in the works why are you making things hard why can't you just celebrate with us that people are coming to faith and that people are their lives are changing their families are getting better and I'm like yeah that's that's great except that on a, on a deeper conceptual level the, a lot of harm is being done and, and we don't recognize it and and, and that's, what is that okay so Jesus in Matthew twenty three fifteen if you are very familiar with the Bible, then you probably know that Jesus spent a lot of time dogging on the uh, religious people of his day, right? Especially the religious leaders. And in Matthew 23, he unloads uh, several woes, seven, I think, woes. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. That's what we're talking about. And, And here's one that I think is particularly compelling in this conversation and should give us pause. It is this, woe to you, teachers of the law, and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you travel over sea and land to win a single convert. And when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Mm-hmm. Yikes, mm-hmm. right? And, and so we would say, well, man, what's wrong with trying to, to make a convert? But I, I think what's wrong with it, as with all of these woes, he gives what's wrong with it in the context of the woe. He's not referring to something off camera, right? And what's wrong with it is if you have to travel over sea and land to make one convert, you obviously don't have your own message straight. That there's something that if the effort that, if you're counting on your efforts to make this convert, then one, you're a child of hell, he says. Well, how are you a child of hell? You trust in your collective strength. You trust in your own efforts. That isn't a kingdom motive. That is an idolatrous motive. It is a corrupt motive. If we've been saved from the elementary principles of the world, how can we count on them to carry out God's work? Right? If if we have to raise X amount of dollars and, you know, I mean, uh, I'm aware of a church not too far from here that they had a, a building campaign. They wanted to build some sort of a chapel or something. And they had good intentions. I'm not saying that that's not true. But over the course of trying to raise the money for this thing, then, you know, they're offering people these kind of incentives like, we'll put your name up on a plaque if you give this ma- amount. Mm-hmm. You know, we're going to put, make a walkway of bricks and you can buy a number of mm-hmm. bricks and your name's going to be on it and all that, right? But that kind of notoriety, does that belong in the kingdom of God? Right. Right? Um, and, and so we begin to resort to other things. We, we kind of concede the message in order to propagate it. Doesn't that become a very dangerous thing for us as we rely on our collective strength to make converts? We become the children of hell that Paul, I mean, that Jesus mentions. Children of hell because we're we're relying on our own strength. Right. And then the converts we make, they are conformed to our image, which means mm-hmm. they also are relying upon their own strength. They're twice as much. 
as Jesus says, you know, you make them twice as much the child of hell because now they don't even have that firsthand experience with God that they've conceded in order to make a proselyte. They're a copy of a copy, and now they're using those same methods and tactics. Um, and so really working against ourselves with a lot of the programmatic attempts that we make to bring people in. And, and you can grow a cult through the right application of social pressure. You know, if, if everybody in your organization, if, if you have successfully gotten everybody on board to have an allegiance toward your movement, your group, okay? And, and everyone is trained that if a visitor comes in, you just absorb them, you welcome them. If whatever they need, you give them. You're, always, you're suddenly their best friend, you know? Um, and now, they want to be a part of your group, you know. Then you have them, if you're the Mormon church, you have them pray a prayer to ask whether this is true. But by that time, you want it to be true. Mm. <laughs> so intuitively, this voice in your head tells you it's true and you believe it. Now you have the witness and all of a sudden it's true, even though there's no shred of actual historical data to back it up. It doesn't have to be true anymore. Mm -hmm. And what I, I guess my real concern is, is that as we, as we resort to these tactics, we stop asking, is this message that we're proclaiming actually compelling? Are we, are we proclaiming a gospel that people want to hear? Is this true? Can this uh, compete in a marketplace of ideas? We don't have to ask those questions if we're a part of a big enough church. Yeah, is the message changing people's lives, or are we just, um, or are people just joining our group and their life, and they're becoming enfolded into our our mm -hmm. community, and maybe in, in that way their life is changing. They're becoming part of us. And there may be even some benefits or some improvements in their lives that are occurring because of that, mm -hmm. or that they feel are benefits. But is it is it is it or isn't it our message that is changing people's lives? Yeah, that that's interesting. I think about a lot of the you know programs and practices. Uh, we do in church sometimes to, you know, try to mature people or disciple them. Uh, it's like, okay, we got them in, and now, you know, we kind of kick off all these things. Well, if you want to be a member, you need to go through these classes, and then we're going to read this book together for six weeks, and you're going to get in a small group. And those things are all good, right? But like you're saying, it's all this outward uh, conforming pressure to, okay, rather than learning how to um get something you know from the inside and, and work its way out into your life together you know it's like well here we're going to put you in a group of people that have already been conformed mm -hmm. and you're going to learn how to conform to them and yeah. that's how we you know a lot of times we do discipling or member making or something in the right. church well so, we we actually use the word uh, on a church staff that I was on we use the word assimilation mm -hmm. that makes me think of Star Trek, the Borg. Hey, brother, I'm with you, man. <laughs> I think the Borg, uh, the people who wrote Star Trek, are obviously modernists uh, trying to make disciples through their own metaphors. Um, and the Borg, I think, is their vision of church. It's a collective noun, Borg, right? You will be assimilated. They don't, they're not there to destroy you. They're there to just absorb you, take away your individuality, and just conform you to the hive mind. And, and I think that that is the, this kind of the horrific picture that unbelievers have of the church, you know, especially as 
they keep coming up with weapons to try to destroy it. And then the church finds a counter argument. And, you know, you think the Borg had this collective ability, like you shoot one of them with your phaser and then you go to shoot the next one. But the hive has learned about phasers and now they have countermeasures, you know. So now you got it under a different weapon. It's this terrible thing. And you think if you are an atheist trying to just tear down the Christian belief system, but you find that they keep moving the goalpost back, right? Every time you come up with what you think is the, just the death uh, stroke and they're like, Oop, whoa, gotcha, you know. So yeah, I, I just imagine as I look at the Borg, if you haven't watched Star Trek, then I, that's okay. Uh, but they, so they have these people that fly around in a cube and they're just there to absorb <laughs> you. They're robots and they have a hive mind. And, and I have to believe that that is the way at least the unbelieving writers of Star Trek see church. That we're just flying around with this hunger to just absorb cultures and to wipe out individuality and to bring people into this uniform mentality. And, and your point is that if we evangelize and don't proselytize, then we actually do preserve individuality right. and cultures. Exactly. So let's 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 flip it and say, now, what does it look like to evangelize? What does it mean that we are? What would it mean if we were evangelizing, not proselytizing? Right. Yeah. Uh, so in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, so this big movement has come and you have the first mega church, right, um, in Jerusalem. And so it says in Acts chapter 6, 1 through 4, it says, In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So here's a program, right, a hunger alleviation program that the church is carrying on, okay? And so the 12 gathered all the disciples together and said it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and we'll give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. Okay, so there's two things going on here, right? There's, there's this relief effort. But I want us to notice that this is not a relief effort for all people in Israel or all people in Jerusalem or all the widows. This is just for the believing widows in the church. I'm not saying we shouldn't care about others outside. I'm saying that, number one, with thousands of people coming in, you have enough widows to deal with right there. Uh, you know, you can't possibly just physically attend to the needs of all the widows in Jerusalem. But on uh, it seems that relief and benevolence was primarily within the church, but it wasn't seen as an outreach effort. You know, uh, I, I think that it was caring for one another as family. Right. When we do outreach often in the church, we think we have to buy the right to speak. And so we go and we'll, we'll feed people and then we'll slip the gospel underneath the, you know, um, there's a church and, and hey, I'm glad anybody tries anything. That's fine. But, you know, when you when you open up a free food truck and you bring people in and you slip a gospel tract underneath the, the food, then you're kind of doing a bait and switch in a way. I mean, it's not exactly, but there's something to the word that ought to have its own power and, and it ought to compel. And where that doesn't compel, there's there's a supplemental approach. 
All right. So the, the, these, these guys are saying, look, we can't take care of this relief effort. We can't head up this ministry because we're already doing a ministry. And that is we are distributing the word of God. And we've said the word of God is this proclamation, right? I mean, this is Jerusalem. They're not handing out copies of the Bible. These aren't the Gideons. Okay. They already had Bibles there, right? It's kind of like going to Salt Lake City and handing out Books of Mormon or something, right? That would be silly. You're ministering the word of God as this proclamation. And so they're saying, we can't stop, we can't stop proclaiming the word of God, right? That's the critical thing. It's the function. And where that was, uh, where it wasn't effective or it needed a push to get through, then what did they do? You know, did they offer clothes or food or whatever to the lost? They didn't. They prayed. And, and, and it's, so it seems to me that the disciples in the first century, in this very successful ministry, I think, a lot of us, you know, we kind of look back to that, that their intention was that those who came in would do so through ministry of the word and prayer. That they had a belief that that word is compelling enough on its own. And it, where it's not, that person doesn't need to come in. Because what we do, unfortunately, is we begin to lower the bar on discipleship and we just start, and, and then we let in lots of people who are not converted, who really haven't been drawn by the saving message of Christ. Um, and we begin to see a church that's very anemic and flaccid as, as unintentionally these people become corrosive, cancerous, parasitic. Um, and that's just not good. It's not good for the Christian movement. Yeah. So what, what should discipleship look like? Ah, you're getting to the next oh, point. Are we moving to point number nice. two? Yeah. yeah. All right, so we're going to yeah. evangelize, not proselytize, point number one. Mm-hmm. Point number two, we're going to retool discipleship. Yeah. Well, before we leave that first point, I just I just want to say that, that as churches and as individuals, we just see the beautiful thing about the gospel is if we believe that it is the power of God, that we are free to give it away. And I think a lot of times we think that the gospel has to be presented a certain way or in a certain context or by a particular person. And, and because we think that, we tend to just not say it. And, and, and so my, my exhortation to believers is just tell people God created them. He sent his son to die for them. He raised his son again. Sun's coming back, you know, and and give them whatever context and background that you can and that you're able to, but know that that this gospel message is a seed and it will germinate in the hearts of those who are called, that God has been at work before you got there preparing this person and that he will keep working in this person as you pray for them, you know, after that seed is planted. And so I just think if, if we made a matter, people are putting in gardens now, and we, and we gave people this massive catalog of all you had to do to prepare the soil before you planted your first tomato plant. No one would ever plant tomatoes, right? And, and I'm afraid that that's what happens. And, and you look at the parable of the sower, like in Matthew 13 and uh, Luke chapter 8 and stuff. And, and here's this, yeah, I don't know where it is in Luke. Anyway, uh, and this guy's reckless, man. He's, he's just throwing the seed everywhere. He's and he seems to just be leaving it up to the soil. What's going to bring the harvest? So this is this is my exhortation: is if you are a Christian, you know enough to proclaim the gospel. 
Okay, you know the word of God and you can minister it. You can distribute it. You don't have to be good at it. It doesn't have to be compelling. You don't have to buy the right to say it. That the power is resident in the seed. So don't worry about all the you know, accoutrement that, that has to come with it. Just tell it. Okay, tell it when and where you can, realizing and just pray over it. And that's it. You've done your job. It's okay. You know, you're not here to make a proselyte. It's not up to you. If people were to come to faith because you were this wonderful saint, then they would be following you. You would be their Messiah. And you don't want that. So if they see you're inconsistent sometimes, that's okay. Right? Because you're not asking them to follow you. Um, so that's, I just want to get there. I, I, we've got to get over this mentality of, of proselytizing people and, and trying to put on this positive face. You know, if we're always trying to put on a positive face so people will come to Christ, then what are we making them but hypocrites? I mean, what did Paul, what did Jesus say? Woe to you hypocrites. You know, we, we present this, this veneer so that people will come in and then they see the rot. But by that time we've taught them how to be hypocrites too. And that's just disgusting and nobody wants a part of it. So that's just, I want to okay. make that so, really. So, so you're talking about how we are making disciples by mm -hmm. uh, evangelizing, by spreading the word, by sowing the seed of the gospel and praying that God will bring a harvest. And so mm -hmm. we have this harvest of believers and now we are what? To disciple them? Yes. Number yes. two, retool discipleship. What what are you advocating for uh, over against a standard practice? What yeah. is the standard practice that you're critiquing? Yeah. Um, well, when I say retool, I want to focus on the word tool, right? So what tools do you need to disciple somebody traditionally? Right? Good materials. Really good discipleship is getting them to read the Bible, right? Yeah, again, people, people read the Bible, take them, you meet with them every week. the Romans road, yeah. <laughs> four spiritual laws. Yeah, yeah. That, well, that's it, making a disciple, right? Evangelizing, those are largely that. But then yeah. you have um, churches will have discipleship models where people are being moved through areas of the church. So you would have somebody who they just attend Sunday morning. That's discipleship 101, right? And then they, they come to, they join a small group. That's discipleship 202. Right, mm -hmm. and then they get in a one-on-one -on -one mentoring. That's discipleship three hundred three. Right, and now, now they're ready. They're ready to move on. They're going to join the pantheon of all the great saints and help park cars in the parking lot. Going to join a serve team. Right, that's, right. That's that's the four hundred four, baby. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's graduate school. After that, it's just sainthood, beatification, performing miracles. Right after that, right. Once you've once you've gone to that echelon, but but. In, in any human organization, we create milestones so that people are incentivized to deeper commitment to the group, but that's all it is, commitment to the group, which is why, you know, when in 2007, when Willow Creek did their reveal survey, they discovered the most committed people in their church were the least spiritually vital and 40% of the most committed people were trying to think of someplace else to go. You know, they, they were so burned out on right, the system. Right, that there was no actual discipleship. People weren't becoming closer to God. Um, they were just more involved. And, and a lot of times, you know, people who are pleasers, those same people that 
you brought in because you had this fish fry and they met their new best friends and they came in now they want you know they want to please that person and so here they go okay so there's discipleship as um, programs uh, designed by institutional churches that's one thing we're critiquing mm-hmm. um, there's discipleship as Bible study yeah um, which is closely related because a lot of times those programs include Bible studies being offered by people by churches you're talking and, about like the classic uh, Sunday school model Sunday school but, or yeah, but I'm, one. I'm speaking yeah. more broadly like beyond uh, like a Sunday school class I'm just talking about discipleship understood as Bible study like I'm going to grow as a Christian by studying oh, my Bible yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to just, you know, in the course of my life, I'm just going to participate in hundreds of Bible studies. Right. Uh, and I'm going to do it on my own, and I'm going to master the art of Bible study. To me, that's been like a big emphasis in my life and in the church, in, in, my, in my pastoral leadership, in my experience, that's been sort of the highest attainment is someone who is really doing a lot of Bible study. Yeah, so if somebody's do five Bible studies at the yeah. same time. Wow, yeah. <laughs> And, and I think you're going to critique that as well. Yeah. There's the more programmatic things that you mm-hmm. were just describing. Then there's also discipleship as Bible study. Right. Um, well, really faithful churches have discipleship as Bible study as their program. <laughs> you know, like get somebody uh, either one-on-one or a group and, and you're reading the Bible together or maybe you're learning a... In, you know, inductive study approach. Uh-huh. And now that, well, that's a faithful church. That's that's uh-huh. a Bible-centered church. And, yeah. and boy, I, I'm just so negative. I, I hate myself. Well, so, anyway. But, uh, <laughs> so, so someone would say, no, yeah. Nathan, uh, that sounds to me like the approach you would advocate for because a person would say they're, uh, they're getting into the Bible, which is virtually the same as getting into the Word of God and the Gospel. Mm-hmm. But because of this distinction that you're making about how the Gospel is the Word of God, the Bible is commentary, Right. It, then I think you're going to argue that discipleship needs to be focused on the Gospel and studying the Bible as secondary. A lot of benefit right. can come from studying the Bible, but we need to study the Gospel and apply the Gospel in our lives. And right. discipleship would look like applying the gospel to our real lives, the real stuff of our lives. Right. And that would, and I think that would then advocate for an approach that's slightly different than discipleship as Bible study. Right. Yeah. I mean. And, and how so? And how would it, how would it be different? Sure. So focused on that word tool. When I say retool discipleship, I, I think the ultimate discipleship tool in most people's minds would be the Bible. But Jesus didn't say, take up your Bible and follow me. Mm-hmm. So there's a tool. Mm-hmm. What is it? The cross. The cross. Right. <laughs> Take up your cross you and follow me. Yeah, I don't really like these uh, Christian t-shirts that much, but, but I do like one. And that is this, it depicts Jesus under the cross and it says, Lord's Jim. I know that sounds, it's, it's <laughs> flippant, but at the same time, the cross is his uh, training implement. Mm-hmm. It's the one thing in his gym if, uh, you know, spiritually he's going to make us like himself. Mm-hmm. And and we don't take up his cross. We take up our cross. But our cross, we take it up because it's him. We follow him, right? So in the Bible, <laughs> and I think the Bible gives us great examples of other people being discipled. And so that's helpful, isn't it? But it doesn't mean you're a disciple if you read the Bible. I mean, I've known people 
with dog-eared Bibles who mm-hmm. were abusive husbands. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So something's wrong. Yeah. Right. Um, so First Peter 2, uh, verse 18, beginning, he says, Slaves, you can say employees if you want, but just say, someone in a life circumstance, right? In reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. Wait, can't I just memorize a Bible verse? No. You must suffer unjustly. Not just suffering. Suffer unjustly. Okay, that's your moment. This is your moment. And he says, but yeah, how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong? So we're not just talking about somebody who was passed over for a promotion. We're talking about somebody who was taken out and caned. Right. Uh, But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. Now, that sounds masochistic and everything, except that that's just going to happen. We don't go looking for it, but it's going to happen. It's just whether that that wretched oppression and injustice has any means to be redeemed. And through the cross of Christ, it is. And so he says to this, you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Is this slave going through exactly what Jesus went through? No. Right? Is he going through a semblance of what Jesus went through? Yeah. He has his own cross to bear. Mm -hmm. And it's under that cross that he finds fellowship with Jesus. And so... You know, he says, who committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. Um, and both of these things that he says, really, in the Greek, it says he didn't sin or lie with his mouth. That Jesus is an example of silent suffering of injustice, right? That he didn't rail on somebody, he didn't go talk about what a jerk that guy was for doing this. He, he didn't sin with his mouth in the midst of this. And when they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself. What have we been saying? It is this faith of the resurrection. He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Mm-hmm. That is discipleship. It's learning that moment of, of exercising the faith of Christ. And in that exercise, becoming more like him. Mm-hmm. Um, and there really is no means to become more like Jesus except under the cross. Think about the disciples. If education was going to make somebody like Jesus, shouldn't the 12 have been exactly like him after three and a half years of walking around with a rabbi? With, I mean, we're saying, well, that, that just wasn't that good of a discipleship program. Jesus should have looked at to Saddleback, right? He should have found the, uh, gone around the bases or something. Alex, he had it. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, are, are you saying Jesus wasn't very good at making disciples? Right. <laughs> I'm saying that discipleship must have a cross that under the very best teacher with 24-7 access, full-time experience, uh, which it speaks to this idea that we can't read the Gospels and duplicate that person if you know, the Gospels are just a very small sliver of everything the disciples experienced. But by the time Jesus died, they all ran away, man. You know, they, they're denying him and running and abandoning him after three and a half years of watching his miracles, hearing his teaching. If 
anybody can be taught into Christ likeness. Those guys would have already been there. Mm -hmm. But there's something about this cross and this resurrection, this story of the gospel that does what all of that could not. Yeah, it wasn't until the that cross and the resurrection and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that it was possible for them to actually be disciples right. of Christ. And then they had to even even then they had to live it through their own sufferings. Right. Yeah. So this um, this idea that reading the Bible more is going to make you like Jesus—it's not. Now, I'm sure Peter's letter was very helpful to those slaves. You know, he didn't say, well, I was going to write a letter, but they have the gospel. I think they're good. You know, that we have a role in each other's life, this encouragement, this exhortation. We have a role to really remind them of what they should already know. You know, Paul or Peter says, hey, I'm I'm writing this because I'm not going to be around much longer. And I want to remind you. Mm-hmm. Paul in Romans 15 says, I, I know that you're already capable to teach each other, but I thought I would just put you in mind of these things again. So... Just as Jeremiah 31 says, they will not teach one another um, because they will all know me. Our job is to remind each other. And the Bible is there to remind us because this world keeps stripping away the gospel from us. It keeps pushing on us and perverting us and twisting us. And we need this reminder, this thing that won't go anywhere, that won't relent, you know, in, in pointing us at the cross and insisting that this outlandish demand that we accept unjust suffering because God loves us is, um, is the standard. Um, and, and through that process, I, it seems from scripture that we are changed because mm-hmm. that's what discipleship, the goal of discipleship is not to, I don't know, have a happier marriage, right? It is to become like Jesus. And so, um, how does somebody become over time like somebody else, right? Well, first of all, we, and we said this last time, that Jesus had to become a life-giving spirit. Mm-hmm. None of us are going to be Jesus of Nazareth. You know, you can take up carpentry and live single and go out and become an itinerant preacher and all that, but you're still not him. You just haven't shared his experience. There's no way to reproduce an individual human life. So he had to be translated into a... Uh, a, a, a universal spirit, right? First, mm-hmm. which that could indwell billions of people right. around the world and through time, right? Right, and so now that spirit lives in the, you know, the the subsistence farmer, and he lives in the CEO, and he lives in the married person, and the man, and the woman. Um, he lives in, and expresses himself, and all these various ways even as every cross is tailor-made to every human setting and circumstance but it is finding those places those opportunities to suffer with christ that that isn't some sort of a unique experience to somebody on a mission field but that in innumerable ways every day everybody has opportunities to embrace this cross that's laid on them um so just not retaliating in some way or just seeking the good of somebody who chagrins you you know those kinds of things are our, are our crucifixion moments and it gives us the opportunity to activate this resurrection faith and according to Paul that resurrection faith it's being vindicated throughout our lives it's not so much a pie in the sky 
but it is that I ask, that I seek, I expect the power of the resurrection to come into this moment of my suffering. Mm-hmm. So, um, on an extreme way, Richard Warmbrand's book, Tortured for Christ, uh, he misquotes, intentionally misquotes Jesus in saying, in the, in the hour when you do not think, the Son of Man will come. And then Warmbrand goes on to say, in that gulag, as we were tortured and drugged, we couldn't think. And in that hour, the Son of Man would come into that cell and the walls would glitter and you know we would rejoice in him that's resurrection power it's what the world cannot account for uh, and so when paul says in philippians 3 hey i've i've flushed my own righteousness so that i can have him and i want to know him and i want to know the power of his resurrection you know um but that comes through participation in his sufferings. Mm-hmm. So there's this kind of dying and rising that recurs in us. So let's say someone is just tempted beyond what they feel that they can bear, right? But if you take that to Gethsemane, you take that to the cross, though you sweat great drops of blood, know that the power of the resurrection is coming behind. You can't see how you're ever going to survive this. Right. If you've been extremely tempted, say a recovering addict or whatever, and we've talked about this some, or whatever it is, a lot of times what I think gets people to fall to sin is the feeling that I can resist right now, and I may be able to resist through the end of the day, but I won't be able to resist tomorrow. But when we approach it as our cross, then there is no tomorrow. Because if you go to the cross, there is no tomorrow. Mm-hmm. God's right? going to have to raise me from there the There is no tomorrow. And so it, it gives uh, somebody who is fighting temptation the opportunity to be in the moment and to just you know, not hide that temptation from God, but really accept it as, your, as their cross and to welcome his power into that moment. And, and so the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. Right, uh, that we begin to see, hey, I, I am not subject to my whims anymore, because that, the cross and the resurrection. Okay, so the gospel bore the fruit of self-control in, a, in that person's life as they died to self, entrusting their future to God, and He came through for them, and self-control emerged in their life, and that's resurrection. It is, it is. Uh, I mean, Paul speaks of death as as this. Um, bifurcation of self as we've spoken of and so how does that self become integrated it becomes integrated that through this process of death and resurrection uh, and I've quoted this before but I, I really think it's important to Romans 8 12 through 17 it says so then brothers we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh for if you live according to the flesh you will die but if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body so you say, man, my body is crying out for something, right? And you say, that's okay. You don't have to follow it. You're not a debtor to it, you know, and that by the spirit, you can execute those longings, right? And, and in, the, in doing that, in putting it to death, you will live. Now, if Paul has defined death as this bifurcation of self, what is life? The integration. Absolutely. And he's saying, if you'll do that, if by the Spirit you will put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. 
So if there's anything that we can't deny our body, um, then we're become debtors. Mm-hmm. So fasting takes on an important element in the Christian life. I love fasting. Right, do you? I think it sucks. I don't really ever want to do it again, <laughs> but maybe I should. Uh, anyway, you will live. And he said, for, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, but Father, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. Mm-hmm. So the tool of discipleship is the cross and your job in my life and my job in your life is to encourage encourage you to take that up mm-hmm. right so discipleship meetings discipleship programs their use is, their purpose will be then to focus on the cross apply the cross help one another apply the cross to the circumstances of our real lives mm-hmm. it's not to study the bible it's not to study uh, it's not to master master the Bible, even a very uh, gospel-centered understanding of the Bible, which we have advocated for, right? right. We've been saying that the whole, go- the whole Bible is about the gospel, and if we see the Bible right, we'll see that, that that's the case. But even mastering that idea as, as a concept is not the, the point. Right. The point is to master oneself yes. by means of the cross, yes. applying the gospel in your real life. Yes. Now, can you imagine a group of people who are becoming ever more transparent and ever more consistent with themselves, right? That their stated values are their behavior. (laughs) And if any place they're not, they are open about it, right? What happens? What, What does that become collectively? You know, I mean, but that's what we lose, I think, when we resort to proselytization and not evangelism, because we we can't be those people. We can't be that group. We're afraid that someone won't want to be there because these people are suffering. They're choosing to suffer. Why in the heck would I want to join them? Right. And and they're being honest about their sins. I mean, they're expressing things that nobody talks about in public and they're just unapologetically saying it, nobody wants that group, right? You don't want to be in that group. Um, and yet it's through those things that, that we're really living the gospel. So we have to trust that it's not us, that we're not this, we're not a PR program for Jesus, that the gospel is his all is his complete PR. And it is what masters us. It is how we walk in his steps you know i mean this idea of following jesus man that's just weird right how do you follow someone who's not physically here well that's where we got the idea that we would read the gospels and try to reproduce that life right but that's not really following him uh or he said but he said take up your cross right follow me Right. And that's not like, you know, it's just like we do with everything else. We, we really limit those sayings. Like we think the gospel is the way to get in. And we think when Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, he means have this self-resignation mentality and then start living by the Bible. Right. That's, that's what we think. Right. Well, that's, that's how, how I've experienced it. it. I'll just, I just speak for myself. The way I've understood it as I 
have received it through the lens of church experience is take up your cross is just to have this moment of mental resignation. Though, you know, if this means I will die for him someday, then I'm, I'm willing, right? And follow me means read the instructions in the Bible and do what, what's there, okay? But how is that following him any more than keeping the Ten Commandments would be following Moses? Mm-hmm. That there is some sort of a discipleship relationship that Jesus calls us into, a mentoring mm-hmm. that we must participate in, and that that mentoring must result in a similarity to him. Right. And uh, people who, there are those who would say, and we're going to wrap it up here soon, those, there are those who would say, no, I'm not trying to replicate Jesus in the Gospels. I'm not trying to obey every command of the New Testament. I'm trying to follow Jesus by listening to the Holy Spirit as he leads me today. There's a lot of that uh, right. today. In, in my circles, there's a lot of sure. talk about like following Jesus by listening to the Holy Spirit and being mm-hmm. led by him, hearing him, right. and, and, and doing what he tells me to do. Right. And I think we're putting a finer point on it than that. We're saying that following the Holy Spirit is applying the cross to your struggles and temptations and, and, and challenges and sufferings. That right. it's applying the cross. That's following Jesus. Right. Whether or not you hear him speak to your mind, whether or not you do or don't. Right. You can follow Jesus by applying the cross. Right. I mean, how does somebody know the voice that's in their head is, is the Holy Spirit? I'm asking. How do we know? <laughs> well, so uh, there are teachings about that going around in the church today okay. about how, well, the Holy Spirit uh, is a gentle voice or the Holy Spirit never contradicts scripture or the Holy Spirit comes with a sense of a, a, an impression, a kind of impression that seems like it's from outside of you. It's not something you generated or, you know, there's, there's these sort of... Uh, there's a check. There are these checklists that are given uh, for how to identify the, the voice of the Holy Spirit. Sure. Uh, in and but I think in our in our series, what we're saying really is that the voice of the Holy Spirit will be death and resurrection, cruciform love, resurrection faith. It right. will only lead you in that way, and that is the um, the universal voice of the Holy Spirit. Right. He will, no doubt, apply specific impressions on individuals and individual circumstances. Sure. But it will, it will follow this pattern. Right. The Holy Spirit, uh, this, this inner voice leading us, uh, it cannot be the essence of the covenant for two reasons. One, there's no way to verify it, um, that it's leading you in the right way in and of itself. Okay. So if you were to come to me and say, well, the Spirit came and said, take your son, your only son, and, and sacrifice him. And I said, no, no, that's surely not true. And you, and you would say, no, I heard it. It's mm-hmm. right. How, what what, what uh, resources do I have to rescue the life of your kid? Right? Um, so you say, well, the Bible, the Bible prohibits that. Well, then you're under the Bible. You know, the, the rest of it is just some, you, that gives you the sense that you're somehow important, that God's talking to you personally, but the Holy Spirit isn't your final standard if it can be trumped by something else. 
Okay, so you're under the Bible, not mm-hmm. the Holy Spirit. Don't say you're under the Holy Spirit. Say you're under the Bible. If if the if you can't violate the Bible because of the voice of the Holy Spirit, then you're under the Bible. Mm-hmm. Just say that. Don't don't tell people that. You know, you hear voices. And maybe maybe you do. Maybe you don't. And maybe God's talking to you. Maybe He's not. We don't have a way to know that. But from outside, all we can know is is that you're under the Bible. Mm-hmm. So just admit to that. Um, so that's one. The other is. If God has to dictate everything you do, you are not becoming like Jesus. Okay? Mm-hmm. If if you had a, a, a person and you were able to put an implant in their head and um, you could see through their eyes and you could dictate everything that they did and the decisions that they made, um, who would be responsible for the good things that they did? The, the teacher. You would. Who would be responsible for the bad things that they did? Yeah, the instructor. Also... Would that person be in a training relationship at any point in that process? Are they becoming something better? No, they're not. They're not becoming. No, they're, they're atrophying. Right? They're becoming less. Mm-hmm. Um, is that is that God's hope for us? I mean, it, it seems to me that God's hope is that we would be conformed to the image of His Son. Um, and how does that happen? Except as we make choices. And those, but those choices are informed. And, and so it seems that much of the time, the Holy Spirit comes into the void after we've made the choice. That the, he comes in in that resurrection power. I'm not saying he doesn't ever guide us, but sometimes we just see where there's that cross and we've been given the opportunity to take it up and we make that choice and we can't see how this is possibly good right so you're given an opportunity to just take the blame for something your team did at work and someone's going to get fired and and you know that's your cross Mm -hmm. you say i didn't do all of it but i take responsibility for my part if you need to fire somebody then you can fire me Mm -hmm. that's taking your cross you can't see how this is going to work. From what you can tell, you look down into the future of your life. You see poverty, homelessness. You see underemployment. That's how you see it. But you can't worry about that in that moment. You have to take up your cross and, and cast yourself into the void. And then pray and mm-hmm. wait. Right? And just, the, just being able to see your circumstance through the lens of death and resurrection is the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Mm-hmm. That's the spirit. I, I, I sense that that what I'm think I, what I think I'm seeing is that God is talking to me. Mm-hmm. The Holy Spirit is talking to me. If I'm having those sorts of thoughts right. about my problems in life, right. that I've got to die to myself and entrust the outcome to God. Mm-hmm. That's the spirit speaking to me. Right. Now, let's say you, you're one of these people. Because who that's thinks, the spirit of death and resurrection. That's the spirit of Jesus. It is the spirit of Jesus. Right. So the Holy Spirit is a living person, but he is the spirit of Christ. That's why in John 7, Jesus says, hey, the one that believes in me comes to me. They'll have the rivers of living water. John says this. He spoke about the Holy Spirit who would be given. Uh, but G- the Holy Spirit hadn't yet been given because Jesus hadn't yet been glorified. So there's this there's this precursor. That's the gospel that that is prerequisite to receiving the spirit. Okay, mm-hmm. and so he, the Spirit, comes to glorify Jesus and to point his people to that gospel message. The Spirit wasn't going to be given wholesale or in entirety until that message was there to point to, 
right? So it's just nonsensical to think, uh, let's say, let's take this person who says they're being led by the Spirit. Let's go back to that situation where they get the opportunity to take up their cross and take the blame for what their team did at work. And they say, well, let me pray about it and wait and see what the Holy Spirit says. And they pray and lo and behold, they have this impression that they should not take the blame. Right. That's awfully convenient, Mm -hmm. right? That's happened to me so many times. I said God was telling me something was really just what I wanted. Right. And, and now this person has, because they're following the Holy Spirit, has refused the cross that Christ is laying on them. They have not grown one iota. They have not had, they have rejected the opportunity to live by faith. And they can do so um, with all good conscience or at least with all good reputation in the church circles where they are. If everybody agrees that they're just taking dictation. Right. And what can we say? Whereas uh, in, when we retool discipleship up, uh, and make it about the cross, then we actually have a standard by which we can judge ourselves and can rebuke one another. Right. We can say, it doesn't look to me like you took up your cross. Right. Uh, I mean, it's not really for me to judge, but it doesn't look that way to me. Uh, and, and, and we can just, and, and we don't control another person with no. those words. We just admonish and, and, and challenge. Uh, because, and we, and we, leave it to, we leave it between them and God, ultimately. Exactly. We're retooling discipleship. Uh, after having evangelized, not proselytized everyone. That's right, yeah. Okay, that's the first two. We'll get to the next two next week. Thanks, everyone. If you have questions, email us at discussion at faithrecoverypodcast.com. We'll see you next time. Woo! Boom.